So what's the knock-on effect of someone if they fast, they get up, they go and train, they don't replenish calories afterwards and they go into their work day. They're going to feel terrible. They're, they're going to yeah. feel terrible all day. So their cognitive function will lower, their decision-making will lower, their ability to focus will drop. And, and ultimately, they're going to have massive motivational urges for foods that they don't want to eat. Right. And they have them in the afternoon and they end up buckling because it's human nature. Right. And it's a part of their life. It isn't their life. And so they end up eating pizza or ice cream, whatever it might be, and then they crash in the afternoon. Right. And it becomes incredibly stressful. Time. Time, as you all know, is our only limited non-renewable resource. If you're an entrepreneur or an engineer, it's always tough to set aside time for exercise when there's always an email to respond to or a feature to write. If you're an athlete, recovery can often fall by the wayside when your mind is fixed on seeing results. Today, I speak with Matt Dixon. He's the founder of Purple Patch Fitness, a top endurance performance coaching company based in San Francisco. He's an expert in optimizing the lives of both time-starved athletes and professionals. He was one of the first coaches to prioritize recovery and nutrition for elite athletes during a time and era where they were really an afterthought. Matt and I discussed the symptoms of underperformance, which biohacks, for example, things like cryotherapy are legit and which are overhyped, and the difference in mindset between training and just working out. Happy 2019, everyone. As a special thank you for supporting me and the HVMN show as we enter the new year, we're hooking you up with a 25% off coupon for Sprint for this month's podcast offer. Sprint is our acute nootropic for focus and energy, which is perfect for jumpstarting your day and kicking the year off right. Compounding caffeine and L-theanine, Sprint has a synergistic effect that produces benefits beyond just the single ingredient alone. Sprint is zero calories, works nearly immediately, and is dose adjustable to your liking. It's both the perfect replacement for an afternoon cup of coffee and a reliable pre-workout, with caffeine being shown to improve physical performance by up to 12%. Activate your flow state today, as this offer is valid until January 31st, 2019. The link to the offer, www.hvmn.com slash pod, is also included in the show notes. As a podcast sponsored by the HVMN business, this is the best way to directly support the show and our work. Of course, writing reviews and sharing the show with your friends is just as appreciated as always. Without further ado, enjoy this episode of the HVMN podcast. Hey, Matt, thanks for coming in the office. Thanks so much for having me. It'll be great to be here. So there's a lot of ways we can slice into this conversation, given your background as an athlete, as a coach, as someone who's been in the performance space for a long time. Mm -hmm. But to set context, perhaps, why not have you tell your story of how you cared or got into performance, how you got into athletics? Sure. And it might, might take an hour. <laughs> no, I'll do the very quick and dirty. So I'm obviously not from the States. I, I grew up on the east side of London and early 90s, very lucky recipient of a, of a swimming scholarship over here. So I came across after uh, finding the Olympic trials in 92, not making the team and came across and had the chance to swim in university here, obviously the best swimming country in the world, and, and went through four years. And if you know anything about swimming, it's not an easy sport. And particularly at the time I was doing it, it was all about big volume, big work. And, and the program that I was in was very much that. Uh, what strokes were you swimming? I was uh, one of the lunatics. I was a breaststroker and 400 IMA. So okay. I did uh, one of the tougher events. Uh, spent a lot of time in the distance lane, accumulating way too many hours. 27 hours a week of swimming was sort of our average. Wow. Uh, and then we had to do the strength as well and, and go to university. But I didn't make the team in 96 and retired from swimming at the ripe old age of 22 or so. But my education at the same time was uh, exercise physiology. And so from there, I got into coaching swimming. And I uh, was very lucky to coach at a very good age group program uh, where I had a lot of sort of top swimmers. And uh, I went through my first journey and really sort of continued the regular swimming mindset in many ways, but decided that with my sort of restless curiosity that I seemed to have, I decided to move on and go and get my master's in clinical physiology down at the University of South Carolina. And it was when it was down there that I uh, got into, found this book, Triathlon, mm. Three Disciplines. And, uh, you know, I'm a big guy, I weigh almost 200 pounds, but I also had a big engine. I ran like a donkey dipped in cement, but I gave myself a shot at it and I ended up doing very well. And really from there, I sort of now had this backbone of elite swimming, 
coaching experience and a background in a master's of clinical physiology, decided to go and try my hand at professional triathlon. And I think the reason I give you that background is I'm a wonderful example of how to do a professional triathlon career very, very poorly <laughs> with the help of some terrible coaching. Over sort of three or four years, managed to train myself into the ground. And I think it's a, a indicative of what the sport was at the time. Success was just more, more, more. How many hours could you accumulate? And everything like recovery, lip service, and recovery strength and nutrition was just lip service. Right. And for me, that was really the fundamentally best thing that could ever happen to me when I look back now as a coach because that forced me to reflect and was really the start of my coaching journey in triathlon and performance globally, because I just thought there must be a better way. I think that's been a recurring theme over the last, a lot of the conversations that we had on the podcast and in industry on the field. When do you think that tipping point came where there was that mind shift from, let's put in volume, you're a champion, tough it out, like, why are you being a softy towards, hey, no, recovery is an active process. Let's be thoughtful about it. Let's actually bake it into the routine. It seems that the conversation over the last maybe couple, two, three years have really accelerated. Or is that just a perception change and has really been a conversation over the last 10 years? Well, I'll, I'll say I think it started 10 years ago in a way. And, and I remember when I first started Purple Patch, which, you know, we're 11 years in now. Yeah. And one of my first, what's always been important for us is education. And I decided that I was really going to be polarizing, not for polarizing sake, but the traffic was going in one direction, as you say, the direction of just toughness. Yeah. And out of my own experience, I thought I've got to go about things in a different way because I fundamentally believe when I look back that there is a better way, a smarter, a more pragmatic approach, both at the world-class level and at the amateur level. Right. And so right at that time, we started with a methodology where we didn't just look at endurance training, but we sort of viewed the program as being what we call now for an education sake, the four pillars of performance, where we talk about endurance, we talk about nutrition and everything that falls under that bucket, strength and conditioning, which I think is critical for endurance athletes and that topic of recovery. And I decided to really start to write about recovery as that subject to that point. And so to answer your question very briefly, when I started talking about recovery, it was really polarizing. Yeah. And, and I somehow became known as this recovery coach. <laughs> and some people it really resonated with, and some people it was not exactly kind when they referred me to that. Yeah. And so I think, it, and, and I wasn't alone, I wasn't this maverick or pioneer of recovery. But I did see that right at that point, 10 to 15 years ago, that the sea was changing and it resonated the message because we had so many athletes, particularly busy, time-starved athletes that were underperforming, both in terms of their effort they were putting into their sport and their performance return that they would get from it, but also in life, they were walking around fit and fatigued. Right. And so it was almost like this message that was like, ah, that's what I want. And I think that the sport started to evolve at that time across multiple levels. The acceptance that strength and conditioning is a key component. The understanding that nutrition and hydration is a part of the performance puzzle, not just an afterthought. And recovery not being a sign of weakness, but actually being a part of the program to facilitate what is still a tough sport or a tough set of sports. Endurance sports are challenging but it's really the performance catalyst in many ways. Yeah. So what did that initial insight come from? Was it a specific publication coming out of the research literature? Was it just your personal experience and you coaching people and realizing, hey, if they take a couple of days off here and there and do some active recovery, people are actually seeing better. So this is more of a practitioner lens that you've had these insights, you know, 10, 11 years ago, or did it come from you know, some seminal papers that you looked at, you read in the literature. I did my master's degree in clinical physiology in the late 90s. Right. And so I don't even refer to myself as an exercise physiologist anymore because that is such a young, exploding science that I think it was at that time, though, it was a great backbone of knowledge. And I was reading plenty and I was reading lots of research, but I didn't get the answer or the catalyst of a methodology off of a research paper. I really got it out of an accumulation of my own experiences and my own experiences being my own personal journey, 
where I was world-class in terms of work ethic. Right. Yeah, I was a, a performance level down. I was never going to be a world champion. But the one thing I could do is work really hard. And I was unfortunate in some ways that my structural body, my musculoskeletal system was robust. So I could drive myself into the ground from a hormonal level, let's call it that. Right. But it was that experience coupled with looking at the performance returns of other athletes that I swam with, other professional triathletes that I viewed and knew, and then my first exploration into coaching. And I just looked at it and thought, this just doesn't make sense. Right. And so I think it was an accumulation of all of that. And I think one thing that can't be understated is when you have sort of <laughs> done to yourself, but when everything is removed, so you lose all your sponsors, you lose the ability to exercise. I, I couldn't, you know, even, let alone training, I wasn't even exercising for a couple of years. So it really crashed. And it really crashed. And when that happens, it forces you to look back and think, okay, let's actually take a real look at the landscape here. And I realized I wasn't alone. It wasn't that everyone was in my situation, but I did see too many people in a fog of fatigue. Were there specific biomarkers that you looked at? Was testosterone down? Was cortisol up? I, I mean, think I had the testosterone of, I had my choice, either an 85-year-old man or a four-year-old child. Uh, I went with the 85-year-old man, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I had very, very low testosterone, very limited cortisol response. You can imagine my iron levels are in the toilet, yeah. everything across everything. And actually, I think that at that time as well, you're desperate to seek answers. And I went to all kinds of doctors. This is past now. I'm, you know, professional triathlon is behind me. Yeah. Went to all kinds of doctors to try and get an answer. But ultimately, the answer was time, rest, healthy eating. Right. And very pragmatic lens on exercise. You right. know, as an athlete that loved to train, I couldn't do that. I had to actually be smarter, but it wasn't something that could be rushed back by some magic supplement. It sounds like you were just stressed almost in a battlefield-like condition. We talked yeah. to a lot of folks that serve in the military and folks that have accumulated so much damage and time in the field have similar symptoms, like low T, high yeah. cortisol, maybe some sleep issues. Yep. And it's hard to reverse. I mean, these, that, that's just an accumulate. It's not just like some acute damage, you break a bone, you can heal. It's just, just like an accumulation of a lot of stress. And it sounds like you're very much working your body down it and is, pushing it, it to such a limit. Okay. And, and when it goes, it's, it's very hard to define exactly. Yeah. So what is the symptom there? But I think upper level from that as well is the people and so many of them at that time that I felt the people that weren't to that stage, it's not like everyone was walking around in a coffin type thing, yeah. but- it's the people that were just not getting the results relative to their hard work. Right. And their only sort of route that they knew to try and seek more results was to do more work. And so of you're course, the negative death the spiral. It's this negative death spiral. Yeah. And, you know, you saw that so much. And at that time in the, in the sort of early years of Purple Patch and my coaching, I was very lucky to actually start to work with a few athletes that almost became my living laboratory. And it was accidental, but it was very fortunate. I had a couple of my early professional athletes that happened to be working with real jobs at their time. And so I was forced to sort of try and get them to world-class within the context of a very busy life, right? rather than a regular professional athlete that only focuses unapologetic world-class right, performance. 24-7, just exactly. go train and rest. Yeah. So how do we get these athletes to compete against those other right. athletes with all the time in the world? I had that challenge. And then I had one particular athlete who's very well known in the triathlon space, Chris Liedo, who was already world-class. He'd been on a journey, you know, he'd already won multiple, multiple Ironmans and multiple, multiple half Ironman races, but his big quest was the Hawaii Ironman. Mm. And so this is going back to 2008, I think, when I started working with Chris. And I looked at him and looked at the landscape of him. And while he was infinitely better athlete than I was ever going to be, I saw symptoms of underperformance relative to the work he was putting in. And so he was working out or training 30 hours a week. When I looked at him, there was no strength. Recovery was an afterthought. And I felt like he was underfueled relative to the training. Exertion, yeah. And so all credit to Chris, he had been down this journey for many years. In his far last two to three years, all he wanted to do was to perform great at the Hawaii Ironman, which is the world championship and the and toughest Kona, Ironman yeah. there is, Kona. And, uh, and he took a massive risk with me. I was a pretty much a no-name coach. 
And I asked him to do a few things, which was the first to cut his total training volume by a third, to really take uh, recovery seriously, both in terms of sleep, which has become a trendy topic nowadays, but really maximizing sleep environment and the hours of sleep to try and improve the quality. He was eating around 1,500 calories a day more than he was in his previous years. And we started doing some strength and conditioning. He was moving into his late 30s and I felt like there had to be a different way. And that year was really a magical year, his first year, because Chris had always been upturned by musculoskeletal injury. And that year we managed to create the magic word in performance, consistency. Mm. And he showed up to the Hawaii that year and he was already talking about next year. And I could tell that he was fit as he needed to be and he had a big platform of base, but he was excited. And that, that really told me he was fresh and he missed winning by two minutes, but he got second at the Hawaii Ironman, a, a huge breakthrough performance. Yeah. So that was a wonderful opportunity for me and athletes like him to start testing and proving. Yeah. So it sounds like a lot of your intuition here is qualitative and assessing the athlete. And I know within the last probably three, five years, there's much more quantitative biomarker trackers, right? This mm-hmm. is a heart rate variability ring. So it's not just a piece of jewelry. Yeah. Is that something that you look at now as these technologies are evolving or is it a combination of you as a feel that the human side of engaging with your athletes, seeing the input output not matching, or are you starting to use some of these quantitative tools? It's the marriage of the two yeah. that creates the optimal scenario. And one of the challenges for performance-driven people globally is that there is a natural inclination to become what I call paralysis of analysis. And so getting driven by the information and the metrics. And the truth is that the information that we receive, whether it's heart rate variability, sleep tracking, power meters on bicycles, biomarkers information, for me, it is valuable information if it is actionable and it starts a conversation. But the human body, we're not building a bridge, we're building a human. And it's highly variable and ultimately has to withstand all sources of stress. So we really try and sort of empower the athlete to be a thinker and we use the information and and we do use a lot of that information. We like to track sleep, we like to track... uh, mood. We like to track, uh, and, and obviously that's qualitative and quantitative. Right. We capture data on all sessions that the athlete's doing. And we use that as information to help us paint the picture of which then it's a human decision that has to occur from that. And a part of my job as a coach or our team's job as a coach is to help educate the athlete and then empower the athlete to ultimately become self-sustaining, to actually be able to make smart decisions. So I think it's the same thing with the emerging trend that's happening now that will happen in the coming future is AI and machine learning, which is really interesting. So if you sort of take data science and you look at best decisions, but all of the companies that are going to come on the scene for that have to realize, I believe, that I don't think that that will ever be a replacement for the human intuition and gut that has to become along uh, along as a part of the equation. Yeah, and I think that's been consistent with a lot of my conversations with coaches and athletes in the sense that, I mean, curious to get your thoughts here. Sometimes coaches will analyze information but not expose the raw data to the athlete because you don't want to confuse them with, you know, you had a low heart rate variability rating today. So uh, I don't want to prime you that you're not going to have as good of a session today. Yeah. Do you play with that or are you pretty transparent? Like, hey, here's the raw information. Let's not overinterpret the data here. How do you balance the priming the athlete for a really good day or bad day with like a placebo or nocebo effect versus how do you actually be quantitative here? I fall onto the ladder more sharing. But before that, I think there has to be a discussion and an educational process around how we are using the data. Yeah. And even from a prescription standpoint, I'll come back to the question, but from a prescription, you know, athletes tend to be very metric driven when it comes to what intensity should I ride my bike at, for right. example, or what should I run at? And and even with our prescription, we have a range of, let's say, power on the bike or pace on the run that we expect an athlete to be, but we prescribe it in terms of what this should feel like. So what's the intention of the workout? What's the intention of the intervals within the workout? And what should that feel like? And that could be in terms of 
perceived effort yep. and the sensations that the athletes feel. And then on the other side of it is the marriage of, well, these are the outputs that we expect somewhere in this range. But that's a very different mindset than, here you go, Johnny, right at this power. Right. Because that's theoretically specificity, but that ignores what the body is providing us for that day. Right. And so to answer your question, when it comes to some of the data that you might be looking at, it's data to help us make a decision or to frame where it is. So this is where we're at. Let's see what the body can give us. And these are the decision-making. This is basically the decision-making tree that the athlete can say, I want to be open to a good performance. But if I was a little suppressed this morning and I get a good performance, then it really might be time for an extra day or two off that's a little bit lighter. Right. Or, okay, this is the data and your system's a little suppressed. And then they don't feel guilty if they give it a shot, go through a warm-up, go through pre-main set, and it's just not there. Right. There is reality. And so I tend to prefer to share, but share within context. Right. Ultimately, I'm dealing with highly motivated adults. And so I think that truth and education and empowerment and trusting that you can bring the athlete to look at things through your lens is long-term, the more effective way to go about it. I think one assumes that, okay, if we're rational adults here trying to be the best possible version of ourselves, then more ground truth is better. So it's interesting. So in terms of you assessing how recovered someone is or manipulating your protocol for them, do you take perceived exertion as the highest order bit, or do you see some of these quantitative biomarkers like HRV or amount of sleep? Or is that kind of a dumb question? Like you still take both? Both, but I, I think that the golden question is for the coach to ask the athlete and for the athlete to ask themselves is, how am I feeling? Yeah. So one of the things that doesn't happen in busy lives is a pause. Yeah. And when you first wake up in the morning, you can't overstate the value of actually coming out of the weeds a little bit. Right. And so any time that you can have a conversation with yourself or a conversation with the athlete to say, come out and actually say, hang on, how am I feeling here? What am I looking to do? Is really positive. And ultimately, that's the decision. And then what you have is the other supporting information to help make that decision. Yeah. I'm not so sure. And there's the data. Okay, that's clear. It's yeah. objective. But what I wouldn't do is say, oh, look at the HRV, for example. We shouldn't train today, period. I think that's just been shackled yeah. by the information. Yeah. You know. So I think when people think, okay, recovery, that seems intellectually appropriate. But what do I even do? Does that mean? So when you tell your athletes to recover, mm -hmm. is it like, hey, go sit down and watch Netflix? Is that do some stretching? Is that do some yoga? When you're actually recommending prescribing recovery, what is the most optimal way to recover? I'm a big fan of trying to boil complex to simple. Okay. And uh, so I'll make this as simple as I can yeah. when I talk about this. But I, I see recovery having really three main buckets. The first is sport specific. The, se the second big area is sort of lifestyle in many ways. And the third is what I call modalities. And so we'll just go through all three very quickly. Sport specific is planned recovery within the sport. And for some people, for emotional reasons, that means doing nothing from a training standpoint. And sometimes people just need that break. They need to release it from the calendar and not move their body. But typically it tends to be, I'm more of a fan of active recovery, very low stuff, maybe with a little bit of neurological stimulation, a little bit of very, very short, fast stuff just to keep the dialogue between brain and muscle Is going. Is like slamming like a medicine ball or something? Yeah, something very yeah. short or a very quick pickup if they're running and going up to sort of very fast speed type stuff. But nothing where they're looking to get fitter, stronger, more, you know, more powerful, but actually facilitate the bridge between hard work. Right. And then, of course, within sports specific, you have things like how you're managing a season, how you're managing a block of work where you have programmed multiple easy days in a row or complete season breaks. But there's a whole category of that. And globally, or the, the, the need to know for the show is keep moving, but keep moving light and nothing that's accumulating fatigue. Right. The second area then is sort of what I would call lifestyle. And that is obviously around sleep, nutrition, fueling, which is a, a, a critical habit-driven component in my mind of consuming calories after workouts, particularly for heavily training athletes, because it's not just about 
restoring the calories that you've done in the workout, but it's about sustaining energy, stunting cortisol, uh, sort of the stress response post-workout with protein. Rebuilding muscle protein. And then rebuilding rebuilding muscle protein. And obviously preparing for upcoming sessions. And so a good platform of eating is obviously a part of recovery, as is post-workout fueling, as is daily hydration. You know, every training session you're doing, you're finishing suitably dehydrated. You'll never retain full hydration status. Right. So what are you doing to facilitate recovery? And then the final big component is modalities. And that's, I like to say, that's everything that you have to pay for. So, you know, whether it's foam rollers or body work or stem machines or compression socks, et cetera, et cetera. And they're all great. They're all nice, but they're just the little sprinkles on top of the cake. If you fundamentally don't get the program right and you fundamentally don't have very simple but actional supporting habits, the modalities are useless. So that is way down on the priority list for me. Yeah. And unfortunately, in performance-driven people, the important stuff is less sexy. This stuff is more sexy. It's gadgets and you can pay for it. And that becomes everyone's focus. Right. Because ultimately, if they have a smart and appropriate training program, that integrates into their busy life and it's supported with some very simple habits, they're going to be able to recover better and ultimately perform better. Yeah. And the other stuff, nice to have if you've got time and money. Hey friends, short intermission here to remind you about this month's offer, 25% off of Sprint. Previous podcast guest and professional gamer Vince Mancini is a particular fan of Sprint. Let's hear about his experience. I was doing tests with the Sprint and I see this is a very good sweet spot because I could have the concentration of the alternating without the jittery of the coffee. And I could actually pay attention. So this product here is extremely effective. Thanks, Vince. To claim this offer, which is valid until the end of January 2019, type in www.hvmn.com. Now back to the program. To just be more pointed here, what do you think is, in terms of modalities, most overrated, most bullshitty, Versus what is actually like what you think is one of the best modalities. Generally not a massive fan of cold water immersion. Cryotherapy story. Cryotherapy stuff is mildly interesting, but not that interesting to me. I actually prefer heat. And that's less of a physiologist lens and more of a coach's lens. Mm. And I don't like interrupting the post-training adaptation process too much. And I think we're at this point where there's this really interesting collision of research. Yes. That's something I've been looking into as well. I'd love to dive into this. Cold versus hot. And cold versus hot. And we're at this point where I think that any sensible coach would say, I don't know right now. And, you know, there's, I think it's different tools to different, for different jobs. And if there's an isolated area where it tends to be that, yeah, an isolated area that's maybe a specific injury, then very cold treatment might be helpful. But for a heavily training athlete, consistently I see that when they come out of the cold immersion, whether it's ice bath or cryotherapy, it tends to make them feel less good when they go into their next heavy session. Versus heat, there's a great opportunity that if you're sitting in a steam room or you're sitting in a hot tub and you're able to do some mobility type stuff in there without looking too pornographic, it tends to make people feel good. It's relaxing. It's enjoyable. And when they come out of it and they come back into their heavy training, joints are mobile, joints are loose. Now, I'm working with heavily training sort of endurance athletes, but that tends to be the trend that I see. So I slide towards that. Interesting. I think from the physiology perspective, I think you touched upon a topic that I've been looking at, which is that for cold therapy, you halt, you insult the post-exercise adaptation. Exactly. Exactly. Where in a steam room or in heat, you actually sustain and accentuate that stress response. So some of the data coming up for hot saunas and steam rooms, you actually elevate growth hormone, you accelerate the pro, like the heat shock protein recovery process. Yep. Whereas with the cold ice baths, you halt that insult and then you halt the adaptation period, which might reduce inflammation. So you might not be as sore potentially, but you're not getting the benefits of being exercised. But, but why are you training? Right, exactly. You <laughs> tra- want the effect of your exercise. If the training is smart and then you go, for, and then the other thing that heat does as well for an endurance athlete is by doing post-workout heat immersion, it actually helps with some of the physiological stimulation to perform in a hot environment and also boosts your blood volume. Yeah. And so if you underhydrate 
immediately following and put yourself in a little bit of a stressful situation from that standpoint and then immerse yourself in heat, you're going to get heat adaptations, which is a nice positive. And then, of course, you hydrate over the rest of the day. Yeah, so I think I think that's spot on. I think that's a very nuanced argument. I think that's at the really cutting edge. And I think right now people are like, oh, ice bath and then sauna. I think it's very confused. And I yeah, think, it is. So I think people out there, the general lay, I think even like coaches, I think are just confused about that. If you talk to professional coaches, so I'm glad that we're touching upon something I think at the cutting edge that will be more fully understood. But I think to be perhaps fair or steel man the cold argument, I think there's probably some application for, okay, you have an injury you have another basketball game or a soccer match the next immediate day. Yeah, Maybe 100%. you don't want to do the adaptation training now. You want to just get your body in a place where you can go again tomorrow. And then I can see it's a compelling story there. 100%. Does that seem fair? A hundred percent. I was going to say it's, it's a sort of performance readiness tool. Yeah. So I can imagine a NBA player on the road and they've got a play and then they'll come back tomorrow. Yeah. We're not looking for adaptations there. Or we, I have nothing to do with the NBA, <laughs> but we're not looking for adaptations there. We're looking to be able to perform the next day on the court. Right. And that makes perfect sense. You know, I'm not saying, hey, cryotherapy chamber, what, you know, it's it's useless. It's yeah. not. It's really interesting stuff. But for people that are just looking to train and create optimal adaptations and carry it throughout the rest of the day with proper energy becomes more interesting. Exactly. Yeah, I think that I'm on the same page there where... If I'm not trying to compete in a specific event, then I'm always using heat. I'm not really trying to blunt my adaptation. Yeah. So what are some good modalities? I mean, I guess I guess you, we like heat, cold, we're a little bit more skeptical, or we need to apply them in the right indication in the use case. Foam rolling. Foam rolling uh, and body work. Um, what do yeah. you think of that? I mean, I think that what the fascia tissue, is that something that you think is beneficial or is that just like a nice massage and it feels good? Maybe that's benefit of itself. I think so much of it comes down to the practitioner okay. and understanding, but time and again, the body work, if done really, really well, is a great supplement. Going to a nice massage and having the legs flushed, it feels nice, so it might be good for the soul, but right. I don't think it's actually really been beneficial. The one thing I will say, our general approach for body work is to try and align the body work on a day of heavier training mm-hmm. because there's so much trauma happening. And on the days that we are actually really looking for recovery, we like to leave the body alone. And so what happens with uh, all sorts of body work is there is a little bit of trauma that occurs. Right. I mean, people are really digging yeah, they're really into the digging tissue. In. And, yeah. and so we don't want to do that on a day that we're looking for recovery. We want to have the body work done at the end of a hard training day. And then the next day, let the body regress to the mean. The body okay. is wonderful at regressing to the mean, and that's what we want it to do. So let it have a time of healing. And that really relates to injuries as well, where so many you know, and hot spots that people have, little niggles and pains, and they get foam rollers or trigger point, and they just go hammer and tongs at it. Right. And they isolate the spot, which is typically the symptom, not the cause. Right. You know, my IT band hurts, so I'm just going to absolutely hammer it. And they end up doing so much trauma that the it body can't actually up. respond. Yeah. It just tightens up. Yeah. They end up actually magnifying the injury. Mm-hmm. So I think that that whole area is good, but it's, it's really dependent on the uh, practitioner. And some of the foam roller stuff is great. On stretching, I'm not a uh, globally a massive fan of static stretching. Mm. So the old school classic, you know, hamstring stretch or put your, your leg up on the table and just holding it in position, standing, leaning against the wall and lengthening the calf and just leaving it there. We do a lot of work on what we call dynamic stretching, right. a lot of mobility work. And even post-workout, particular to me is sort of focusing generally more on endurance sports. And most of the work that we're doing, we're not putting the athletes into massive acidosis. And so even components like a cool down is in a time staff life, warm up is critical, cool down less critical. Yeah. So we don't spend a long time cooling down. We don't do static stretching afterwards, but we tend to do more range of motion and mobility exercises. Interesting. Yeah. I think that's something that I've personally just found it much more interesting and seemed a lot more effective. You're doing more dynamic movement stretches rather than just like trying to touch my toes. Trying to touch your toes. Yeah. And there's actually, it's so funny because we, I remember a couple of years ago watching the professional soccer players that in the premiership Yeah, and they're all 
out on the field doing static stretching, but there's, there was really interesting research around static stretching. Before games. Uh, before games, cr- leading to underperformance right. in sprinters. Right. And so, and there they all are, some of the best soccer players in the world doing static stretching. You got to tell their physiologist. So you got to hey, tell their physiologist, yeah. you got to catch up. So I think they are, but, um, but certainly for our athletes, we don't do any static stretching before. Unless there's some form of medical reason, yeah. you know, so under, under the guidance of a, a specialist. How about more speculative modalities? Have you heard of infrared saunas? Is that on the edge of your knowledge? What else are some of the crazier modalities that you've seen? We're building a center in San Francisco, and I think we're going to put an infrared sauna okay. in there. Okay. So I find it really interesting. You think it's reasonable? Okay. But I think it's reasonable, huh. but I haven't made the purchase yet. I should point out. Yeah. Let's move on to nutrition. I think that's like interesting coverage on, on, on the modality side. Obviously, with our audience, a lot of interest around fasting, kids diet, low-carb diet. We had on a number of carnivores on the podcast recently, which were interesting conversations. We had Michaela Peterson, who's the daughter of Jordan Peterson, who's a famous Canadian psychologist. We had some of the moderators and thought leaders in the carnivore space. So I think a lot of interest in diet. And I think it's always something that everyone cares about because that's what we kind of make decisions on every single day. I would say that in the endurance space, there's perhaps an upswing in interest in low-carb but I think that needs to be thought of in a very careful way because obviously when you're doing Ironman triathlons, these are very intense events. You want to be fueling properly. Exactly. So just doing a fasted marathon is probably not the smartest thing to do if you want mm-hmm. to actually win. So what are your thoughts on diet, nutrition, and maybe you can unpack some of the considerations here. The first thing that I'll say is I'm not a massive fan of evangelism across yeah. any subject. And uh, so I, as a coach, I try and surround myself with, smart people and I remain curious and explore. And so I think that, and you guys, it it become maybe a great case in point where it's this really interesting, exciting research Mm -hmm. that needs to be reviewed and looked at. But I don't think any of us can say, oh, we have the answer to nutrition globally. And I tend to start at a place of habit driven. So what are the key components And I don't think that you can have a discussion around nutrition without being in context of what the person or the athlete is trying to do. 100%. And so if you take a type 2 diabetic that is relatively inactive and has been living on a diet of processed food and sugar, and then that is a very different sort of methodology that you might use of intervention to try and help them thrive and and repeal their type 2 diabetes than a fit, healthy Ironman amateur triathlete that's trying to perform at their best level in an Ironman. And so when you sort of mix the two and and say, this is the solution for all, I think there's going to be a collapse somewhere. And so from a performance-driven population, I start with uh, things that I think are true. What are we looking to achieve? So if we're looking to train consistently, achieve adaptations and thrive in the other compartments of our life. So our work performance with cognitive function, et cetera, our health and bring the best version of our, that we can for our family. I think that that for most performance driven people, that's what we're looking to achieve. Mm -hmm. And for someone that's training or exercising in the morning, for me, that means that we tend to front load carbohydrates and we tend to have carbohydrates following the workout when the gateways are there, but not carbohydrates alone. It has to be supported with plenty of protein and some fat. But if they do that well, so I'm not a massive fan of fasting post-workout. I guess that's the message out of that. Yeah. But if they do that well, the last thing that someone that's sitting in the workplace wants to be doing is consuming a whole bunch of starchy carbohydrate and a whole bunch of sugar because yeah. that's going to start to create fatigue and oscillate. So instead, we tend to anchor around lots of proteins, lots of vegetables, lots of fruits, actually, and just a general well-rounded diet. But to answer your question, maybe you, you just sort of prod me more into specific areas. But yeah, I think I just teed up with just a giant can of worms here. Yeah, so exactly. I wanna, yeah. So you, you, yeah. Um, <laughs> but I tend to be more habit-driven okay. than anything else. But if we think about our professional athletes that we work with, our very elite athletes, we have several athletes that are what we might call fat-adaptive, if you want to think about that. But none of them are fasting, eliminate carbohydrates from their life, but they embrace 
fat utilization, they embrace proteins, they have to eat a lot right. to support their training. And when they're actually racing, you know, the predominant fuel source still needs to come from carbohydrates. Right. So I think that because we talk a lot about ketone esters, oxygen ketones, fasting, ketogenic diets, is that people think that we advocate that or I advocate it or I'm on a ketogenic diet every single day of my life. And I, I, I am not. And I think that you touch upon it nicely where you have to look at the indication to optimize your nutrition and your protocols around that. Mm -hmm. So again, I think you're absolutely on the dot. If you're a type two diabetic, you probably want to reduce as much carbohydrate intake as possible. Yeah. But if you're trying to be at the highest level of performance, clearly there's a role for sugar for the anaerobic push at the end of a race or during a race. Yeah. So I wanted to touch upon what you mentioned on, which is keto adaptation or fat adaptation. And I think one interesting active debate in uh, sports nutrition is, can one be as keto adapted as possible and have as peak performance as someone that's being filled with carbohydrate? I think some of the work out of uh, Volek and Finney are advocating, okay, keto adapt for six, nine months and you don't need carbohydrate. I'm personally a little bit skeptical about that, given just some, some subjective, you know, in practice experience and just looking at the broader literature of how useful a punch of sugar can be for performance. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a lot, for, even for your keto adapted athletes, you still recommend carbohydrate during the races or before the races. Let's think about it the other side, I think, from the equation. So when I hear stuff like that, the chances of that being functional across and long term. It would be like suddenly finding out that gravity exists, you know, like it's, it, it, it's, it's too revolutionary for me and not to be too dismissive. I think it's really interesting, but I, I think about it like this, and I'll talk in terms of triathlon globally or endurance training. If you're going out on a low intensity, long endurance bike ride or run, you don't need to be packing your gills with Gatorade and sugar and everything that was pushed and marketed and promoted to us for the last 25 years. Right. It's a mistake. You can eat, in my mind and just my opinion, but you can eat real food that is not carbohydrate heavy because you can train your body to actually become more fat adaptive, if you want to call it that. Right. And you shouldn't be overly dependent on high sugar in those environments. But if you're doing a very short, very high intensity interval workout, then on the flip side, there is a case to be told that sugar is your friend in that environment. Yeah. And if you are doing a Olympic distance triathlon that is two hours of very high intensity or running a marathon at the elite level. You're going anaerobic. You're going anaerobic. And yeah. there might be there may be, and it's really interesting of, is supplemental exogenous, exogenous ketones. Yeah. It's really interesting to me, but I don't know enough about it yet. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So I, so I, rather than just for me jumping on and saying, this is great, it's the next big thing. It's like, let's stand back, explore, investigate, research, and hopefully <laughs> lean on guys like you. Yeah. To, Have to, you experimented with our ketone No, no, not at all. We gotta get, you got to get yeah, you to so experiment we'll, with uh, it. We'll do it. But, but the, the case comes back, it's, it's pragmatism. Yeah. And uh, I think it's where I, where I started with evangelism, where there's this, in the same way as, you know, what do we learn from history when we were told that fat was bad and we saw what happened there? Right. Uh, on People the flip side, poles. yeah, if it's this polarized carbohydrate is bad, there has still been no diet that I'm aware of in history where a complete elimination of one of the three macronutrients has ever been successful long-term. I still haven't seen one that's been Yeah, well, I think that's, a, that's the N equals one that all the carnivores are testing out live it, right exactly. now. Exactly. So, well, let we'll, them be we'll the see. living experiment. Exactly. We'll see, you yeah. know, and it's, and it's investigating. And I'm not being uh, by any stretch dismissive of it. I think it's really interesting, but I also don't claim to be an expert. This is It's a part of my field right. that I'm owned to explore and understand and talk to specialists about yeah. to build then a pragmatic Cool. Lens, yeah, I just want to get your thoughts there. I think one thing that we've seen getting more and more traction is this notion of cyclical diets. Mm -hmm. So I think we touched upon the notion of keto adaptation or fat adaptation or fasted workouts. And the notion there is that you want to stress the metabolism. So you upregulate enzymes and proteins that relate to when you're at later stages of the race where you are more fuel depleted. Mm -hmm. And then you also do training when you're fully fueled to give your body full adaptation across all types of fuels. Is that something that you guys play around with or do you stay pretty consistent? That seems to be one of the 
the things that you focus on consistency. We have a fairly stable diet and we just put people on their habit and let them go. There's a reason for that where if we think about in terms of things that are mutually exclusive, so if you only think about it at the enzyme level, you say this happens in the lab and this this will happen and so this is what we should play with. I tend to come up a level and try and look at the whole landscape. Mm -hmm. And for the vast majority of people that we're working with, if we remove the world-class athletes that have all the time in the world to plan their meals, to sleep, to take naps, which is a huge part of recovery, by the way, and everything that we would love in an optimal situation, there's more opportunity to play, test, and align. But most people are trying to integrate performance, health, fitness into a really big life. Yeah. So what's the knock-on effect of someone, if they fast, they get up, they go and train, they don't replenish calories afterwards and they go into their work day. They're going to feel terrible. They're, they're going to yeah. feel terrible all day. So their cognitive function will lower, their decision-making will lower, their ability to focus will drop. And ultimately, they're going to have massive motivational urges for foods that they don't want to eat. Right. And they have them in the afternoon and they end up buckling because it's human nature. Right. And it's a part of their life. It isn't their life. And so they end up eating pizza or ice cream, whatever it might be, and then they crash in the afternoon. Right. And it becomes incredibly stressful. And when we are training within the context of a time-starved life, we are placing a specific stress into a whole big reservoir of stress. Mm -hmm. The challenge of getting enough sleep, travel stress for work, your commitment, so at the work and obviously with your family. And so it becomes, it comes back again, it's really interesting, but the solution has to be habit-driven and repeatable. And so Similar to the mindset of modalities, in order for it, anything to be effective, it has to be simple to execute and repeatable. Yeah. And so they might go through phases or opportunities where you can look at the workout, look at the day and say, this is a time that maybe you're doing some careful reduction of calories or fasting. But it has to be done very strategically within context of the big picture. And I think that's where people miss it because they, in thinking that they're doing the right thing, is in one particular area, they fail to see the big right. picture. I think it's an important caveat. And I think, well, you know, one thing that is kind of my pet hypothesis here is that cyclical training blocks is fairly standard practice now in top mm -hmm. level sports physiology training, right? Yeah. Like you'll ramp up load and then taper down before the event. And I can imagine a world where, again, the caveat is that this is like a professional with infinite amount of time and resources to have custom diets. You have cyclical nutrition blocks that match your training volume that also peak for the competition. That could be an interesting interplay where the training volume is not sort of cyclical and customized. And can you imagine that one of the other interventions, nutrition, is also cyclical and, and personalized for an end outcome? It's funny you say it because I was listening to that question there thinking, in some ways I'm a dummy because we kind of do that in a way and, and I'll explain. So you're dead right. I mean, I think that and let me preface this first, it doesn't just have to be an athlete that needs to train. I think everyone needs to train because exercise is random. Training is structured and progressive. Mm -hmm. So even if you want to be the healthiest human being possible, I think most people that exercise want to improve. Right. The only way to do that is to have some structured and progression. From an athletic sense, that means that we're sending athletes through phases of training. The phase of training that we tend to be in right now is what we call postseason, which is the lowest physical stress and it's really a phase of preparation. So we're doing a lot of technical development and a lot of readiness of in the upcoming months being able to absorb and handle very heavy training loads. Yeah. And so at this time of the year, we really encourage athletes. This is a time of the year that there shouldn't be a workout where you are consuming high sugar. It's just because the training load is not there. Right. Versus if we go into the right in the heart of race season and we're doing race simulations, we want the athlete to be adhering to the same timing, amount, and type of calories that they're going to be absorbing in the race-specific training right. sessions. Not every training session, but in the ones that most like, most mimic what they're going to do on race day. And so in many ways, it is sort of is periodized, if you want to call it that. Right. It is phase-specific. And so, you know, I said, hey, it has to be simple and actionable. We, we still do go to that level, I would say. Yeah. 
I think the marketing side is interesting where it makes sense. Again, I think what you're speaking about, like Gatorade, goose shots, it makes sense when you're in practice. But if you're a casual athlete who maybe goes to the gym for like 30 minutes on a treadmill or an elliptical machine, do you need to be downing a sugar bomb? Probably not. I mean, the rule of thumb that we say to our athletes globally is if your workout is 75 minutes or less, you just don't need any calories. Yeah. And, you know, maybe if it's really high intensity, you might have something there just in case. Yeah. You know, you got something wrong and you're having a sugar crash or yeah. whatever. But for the most time, 75 minutes or less, there's just no need. And yeah. you can drink to thirst yeah. for the most part because you're not going to have any of the negative byproducts. But it is what you do afterwards that becomes really important. Right. But for a workout that's lasting multiple hours and is training and is interval driven, well, then there's a case of like, okay, what's the strategy that I need to employ there to make sure you're maximizing performance and you're not creating too much of a deficit that's going to have a lag into the rest of your day. Yeah. So I think a lot of people focus on pre-fuels, but it sounds like, especially on the recovery side, you know, I agree with you, fasting after workout, unless there's some specific reason why you want to do that, is very stressful for your body. Yeah. I mean, that 30-minute hour period when your muscles are open to absorbing nutrition is a pretty critical time period. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's controversial. Anything interesting there, would you say, you know, a standard carbohydrate protein shake is, you know, kind of standard practice, any specific nuances? I think you can get kind of nerdy with like, oh, do people care about vegan protein versus whey protein versus should you just eat a steak? There's been emerging data around how ketone esters with carbohydrate and protein accelerate some of the glycogen mm-hmm. and protein resynthesis uh, enzymes. Anything interesting you're playing around there for post-exercise nutrition? A general rule of thumb, again, for the time-starved, busy person, it has to be simple, (laughs) able to be executed and and easily absorbed. So if you've got a very heavy training session, and then we tend to go carbohydrate, protein, easily absorbed, uh, protein sources a shake. But for the vast majority of people, your sort of uh, point before of the person going to the gym, the person doing strength, eat real food. It's a great opportunity. We have too much processed food in our life anyway. So if you get the opportunity to eat real food, it's great. And we tend to lean more post-workout fueling of that's a good time to actually have some of your carbohydrates that you're going to have in the, the rest of your day. Protein is always there. And a part of that is we know that protein is a natural suppressor of cortisol, Mm -hmm. which is obviously suitably elevated to help you perform, but you don't want to carry that into the rest of the day. And we tend to be a a little less on things like antioxidants, which tend to- Which again, blunt adaptation. Blunt adaptation. So we tend to try and avoid people having lots of berries in their shakes, et cetera. But it doesn't mean antioxidants are bad. They're great in the rest of the day. They're full of vitamins and minerals, et cetera. So- It's the timing of them. Simple, actionable stuff. And I have never tested ketones as as being a part of the the process. All I've done so far is read Brianna's paper. Okay, yeah. We got to get some, you know, actual data from you there. Yeah. I think that resonates true with me personally. I like doing faster workouts and fueling afterwards. Yeah. Which I think is a reasonable response in terms of draining out remaining glycogen and then and post-recovery, you have like full repletion of all those nutrients. And again, that's more for longevity and metabolic stress reasons than for winning, you know. Yeah, marathons. winning anything. And yeah. I'm, I'm not trying to win the thing either. The other thing as well is I tend to, when I work out, I work out in the morning. Yeah. And I just don't do well with food in my stomach. Yeah. And so you wake up naturally fasted. Yeah. You go and exercise or you go and train. And then it's a great time to fuel the rest of your day and replenish. Yeah. So even from a life structure, I think is a really good thing and performance during. Yeah. The only component, there is some research for female athletes and some of the negative hormonal byproducts of not taking in some calories, particularly protein first thing in the morning. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's definitely some variation in terms of how much body fat you know, per gender that you want to maintain. Absolutely. So I know that a lot of our audience are high performance athletes, but you know, people like myself, I'm not a professional athlete. I don't have any dreams or delusions of winning Kona. So I consider myself more of a creative or intellectual worker. Mm. Do some of your training protocols, nutrition protocols, modalities apply to that world? How do we optimize our training our routines to be more productive members of modern society. I sort of have a Jekyll and Hyde life as a coach and really our purple patch coaches have to live the same as well because on one side I have my squad of pro athletes. Yeah. It just as you know, 
And unapologetically, their quest is world-class performance. But the majority of people that I work with outside of that population are very busy executives and CEOs that are looking to do just that. So they understand the value of integrating fitness into their life, let's call it that. But how do they do that where it can have a net positive effect on their health and their cognitive ability, decision-making performance, let's call it in the workplace, and then also still be able to return and be really present for their family. And I think that's a utopian but achievable ideal. And so the lens that I take on that is how do we draw the lessons from the methodology that we use for these elite athletes that are looking for fantastic performance, physiological fitness performance? How do we draw the lessons from that and translate and apply, because you don't just replicate, but translate and apply to someone that's just looking to thrive in life. And so some of the key components, if you imagine sort of, we talk about it in terms of an intersection of a Venn diagram, where I think in the busy working professional that's looking to thrive, they have to have three main components. And the first is their habits around what they're doing in the workplace. And there's all sorts of really interesting emerging research of how to be most effective in the workplace. And it used to be, not so many years ago, probably aligned actually with the bubbling up of the interest in recovery, where effectiveness in the workplace was measured by the number of hours that you're actually doing and toughness. And what we realized by working with so many executives and CEOs is toughness is not a differentiator. That's just a prerequisite. Everyone's tough. Life is not easy. Everyone's tough. But really being able to work in effective, both in terms of environment, understanding that you're working in sprints, taking breaks, looking at things like hydration and realizing your pee breaks are performance enhancers. They're not (laughs) disrupting your effectiveness at the desk. Moving around, we obviously know things like standing desks and things like that. And the the key to actually consistently move around, your Apple Watch will tell you to get up every hour, for example. So there's a big bucket of what you do there. There's then, I would say, training. And I mentioned this before, just because you exercise doesn't mean you're healthier. Just because you get up every morning and go to the gym doesn't mean that that's actually creating positive adaptations Mm. or helping you thrive in the workplace. I think every human being needs to train. And that doesn't mean they have to be trying to search and win Hawaii. And it doesn't mean that they have to sign up for an event. I think a goal of some nature makes it easier to adhere to. But their exercise that they're doing in the same as anything in life will be more effective if it's structured and progressive. Mm -hmm. And so you draw from athletes, not to become an athlete, but to actually get the most out of your sessions. So if you are exercising four or five times a week, what are the sessions that are designed to move the performance needle and be more challenging? What are the sessions that are there to be more therapeutic emotionally and physiologically and help support those key sessions? Right. You don't need to be obsessive about it. You don't have to be evangelical about your fitness, but stretching and progressive is key. And I've never seen someone over the long term be highly effective in that area without having real structure behind it. Hmm. It's one of the limiters of general group fitness. You get fitter and quick results over six weeks, and then what's the next thing because everyone plateaus? Plateau, right. Longevity and consistency can only happen if you have periods of progressively load, and then you have breaks to rejuvenate and step back. Not dormant, but breaks in the stress. So you're saying that, okay, you probably go in the gym 30 minutes an hour a day is at least better than sitting on your butt. It but, is. Right, uh, that, that should be obvious. But you oftentimes see people plateau. So having some sort of progression and cycle or periodization around challenging yourself is maybe a little bit more incremental work, but pays much more dividends as your argument. And there's also loads of other benefits from it as well, because one of the great components of training, if you want to call it that, it's almost in a in a therapeutic from a mental standpoint, almost carries as what meditation should do as well. And is a great performance inclusion. We didn't talk about it, but I think meditation's key. But if you have structure around your workout, those 30 minutes, it forces you to be present. Mm-hmm. And if you are present or focused, and then it removes you from the stresses of family or work or commitments, 
And outside of the dishwasher effect of your brain that's going to improve cognitive function, decision-making, long and short-term memory and focus, it also removes a step away from you. And that's key as well. And so absolutely, to be effective, you have to be structured. Every day should not be the same. Otherwise, the body won't adapt because it gets used to the adaptations. But then the third bucket is rejuvenation. I would like not recovery, but rejuvenation. And that includes what we talked about with a backbone of healthy eating habits and fueling habits, positive sleep in terms of quality and quantity. But I think also another venue for the high-performing individual to remove themselves from the rigors of work. And that might be building model aeroplanes. It might be meditation, but there has to be an escape. And so when you get the connection of those three components, where you have great habits around fueling and recovery and rejuvenation tied in with appropriate and integrated training. So it can't just be dumped on top of life. It has to be integrated to life and positive work habits. Something happens every single time they accelerate and yet they improve in sport, but they also become better at decision-making, better leaders, more effective, and they start to join the dots. And the final thing I'll say about it, which I think is most interesting, is when I've worked with so many CEOs, it's the same tools and mindset that they would apply to setting up their business strategies. And all of the lessons that they have as a business leader, they already know them, but most of them do a very poor job of connecting them dots to To themselves. themselves. We have a saying, coach our pros like CEOs and our CEOs like pros. Because once they join the dots, they realize, how can I have been such a dipshit? (laughs) (laughs) Because it's all basic and habit-driven. It's not overly complex, but they start to join the dots between the parallels of that. And if you look at the traits of a high-performance CEO, for example, and you look at the personality traits of everything that makes a professional athlete, they're exactly the same. And uh, they're they're exactly the same. They're continually cross-pollinate and just look at each other. It's it's interesting. You're essentially an executive coach or a life coach with a vehicle of training, which is interesting. I think there's a couple nuggets in there, especially around the structure of training, making sure that you're actually meditative or, or, or present when you're training. Because that just yeah. reminds me when I am at the gym, I see so many people in between their sets, like on their phone, yeah. checking social media or Twitter or, or any of that stuff. And I've been guilty of that myself. They're missing a chance. Do you think that that distraction has really popped up in the last couple of years that you didn't see 10 years ago? Do you just feel that people are just a lot less present now? Where, and you have to just retrain people's mind more aggressively today versus 10 years ago? I think we've fallen into a trap of thinking that, that we always have to be connected to be effective. Yeah. And the truth is the antithesis of that. I think you have to be really programmed to be effective. And a great example of that is email, yeah. where we always feel like we have to respond to email straight away. Right. And, you know, hand up, I'm also yeah. guilty of that. Versus we know that the most effective way to use an information transfer tool, which is email, is to do it in blocks Block of focus yep. and then turn it off yep. so that you can be present on task. Right. And the same applies with exercise as well. So can you imagine if I said to you, all right, we're all going to go and meditate and we're going to go and sit in a room, but we're all going to be on social media. You'd say, that's insane. Yeah. Well, the same applies because exercise or training is not meditation but you are spending some of your valuable time. And for many people, time is our most precious commodity. You are deciding to spend this time on something that you know is really valuable for you, but you want to get the biggest results. And the best way to get results is to execute as intended. And the only way to do that is to be present. Yep. And so that's why I ban cell phones from our indoor cycling classes, because I need people to be present. And then when People they listen come to back, music, music is a tool in training as another one that's really yeah. interesting because similar to our nutrition discussion, it depends on the training session. Yeah, okay. So I think music is a great motivator. We know that it can lift mood. It can lift performance. If we're happy and but we're enjoyable, it can't enjoyable, be a distraction. It can't be a distraction. Took it off just yeah. so I get distracted. Oh, I don't like this song lyrics and then you just get thrown off. It, it, exactly. You know, for me personally, and I'm not a fan of me, hey, I'm a coach, listen to me because it's what I do. Right. <laughs> but there are certain sessions where if they require focus, where they're really interval driven, 
And then the best thing might be some music to help maximize the performance, but you're not listening to a podcast there, right. for example. Versus if I go for a trail run and I'm getting some byproduct physiological benefits by being out there for an hour or whatever it might be, but I'm not really training per se. You know, the purpose of that session is for me to move my body, have fun and be a release. Right. Go listen to a podcast. Yeah. It's a great way because that's feeding my soul as well. Right. Something that's interesting. Yeah. Very balanced, very wise. You dropped a lot of interesting nuggets out there. So how do people find you, learn more about Purple Patch, learn more about you and all the things that you offer? Our website is purplepatchfitness.com. But I think the easiest way is probably the Purple Patch podcast, actually. We do a weekly podcast and it's not about triathlon training. It's about the subject of performance globally. And it's only education. So uh, one of the things that's right since the inception of Purple Patch is the passion for education. So I think that's a great venue to listen. And I love to hear thoughts. We answer questions every week. I love it when people engage and participate. So either head to the website or listen to the podcast and we appreciate you share with your friends and family if you find it valuable. Yeah, if you enjoy this conversation, head on over. I mean, Matt's got some wisdom to, to share here. Thanks so much for dropping by the HBMN podcast. Really great fun. Thanks Thank so much. You. Really appreciate being here. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in this week, everyone. Remember to check out www.hvmn.com slash pod for this month's special podcast offer. For January 2019, that offer is 25% off Sprint. It's a new year, time to hit the ground running. Are you interested in getting $15 worth of HVMN store credit that you can use on our website? Submit a written review on our iTunes page and send that screenshot to podcast at hvmn.com. Our podcast email line is always open for your suggestions, feedback, and questions. Until next week, friends, stay sharp and train smart.